What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Let's Hope the Weather Holds, podcast where I talk to people I meet uh, as journalist and photographer in the travel and agriculture world. Today, I speak to Ivan Carter, conservationist, big game hunter, super nice guy. We talk about everything from conservation in Africa, uh, rhino horn, the sales of rhino horn, um, predator hunting, if there's still space for it, and yeah. Just how conservation in Africa works. I hope you like what you hear. Let's go. Ivan Carter, welcome to Let's Hope the Weather Holds, uh, my podcast. Um, I realize if it wasn't for lockdown, I probably wouldn't have been able to speak to you because you would have been in the field in some country uh, off doing something else. You're in South Africa at the moment? Yep, I'm in South Africa. It's um, probably <laughs> it's probably the longest I've ever been in one place, to be honest. Um, you know. Uh, by virtue of what I do for a living, being outdoors, being involved in every every aspect of conservation, you know, you find you travel a lot. We we operate in lots of different countries, and um, you know, there's there's a lot of great ecosystems across the continent. And so, yeah, I think the family is ready for uh, for travel to open and for me to get back into the bush. You know, <laughs> I can think. Um, in, in terms of lockdown, I've actually got a, a structure of questions, but now that we've just touched on it, uh, is it affecting poaching impacting poaching because my father in south africa said there's a couple of stuff about poaching in the news yeah you know i think that one of the things that's really been deeply affected is the fact that so much poaching dollars comes from tourism both photographic and hunting tourism and of course with lockdowns um it's not that people can't have tourists but the tourists can't get here and as things are opening up um you know really the reality is um, they can say, yes, Kruger Park is opening or, you know, the Serengeti is open or the hunting season is commencing or whatever that might be. But the reality is there's no way to get here. Nobody wants to go on a holiday where they've got to have a two-week quarantine and be, you know, one of the, the 200 people on the one-time-a-week flight. And so, you know, the reality is um, it, it's tough because most of these anti-poaching teams are in some way, shape or form linked to tourism dollars. Yeah. And um, even from a philanthropic perspective, our, our little foundation, um, we certainly seeing people are giving us, you know, a quarter of a, or a third of what we would normally get from, from certain individuals. And it's because with COVID-19 businesses are failing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a strange world we're in right now, but there's a lot of people that are unsure of the future and are not, not giving as freely as they would. And yeah. obviously the travel component. So I wouldn't say we've seen a giant increase yet, but there's two components that really work together to, to the detriment of, of conservation. As one is there's gonna be more hungry people yeah. and there's gonna be less protection dollars. And those two components are really hand in glove. And so I'm hoping things are going to turn around fast and we can catch up. But um, yeah, the jury's still out on that. Well, I hope so too. And I hope um, someone sees that they should keep on pumping that money into, into anti-poaching teams and just yeah, get the feet on the ground and do Absolutely. what needs to be done. But I, I just want to backtrack because um, this one, I think, is purely for the... the, the uh, Ivan Carter and, and Carter's War fans out there. So the, the first time I saw a, a photo of you, it was a photo of you standing with a rifle in hand with a young bull in front of you. And I thought, who is this guy? Because I hunt, and when I hear buffalo, I look for a tree. 
that's it. You know, in South Africa, you don't see a lot of buffalo on hunting, but you know, I'm sure most people are like that also. So you grew up in Zimbabwe and um, by any standards, uh, I was there in, in November. Uh, if you compare it to Auckland or Johannesburg, it's, it's not normal. It's, it's nor no. normal for the people who grow up there, but you know, a city slicker is very far removed from that. How, how did you go from normal kid at school um, to the guy standing in front of a charging elephant and looking fairly calm? Like what did you know? The, the reality is, we study, and I just want to. We should talk about conservation, but I just want to hear about that, please. You know, it's been an interesting journey, and and I think that you know the the fortunate few in the world that get to work in an area of their lives that's truly their passion. You know, it it really is a very fortunate place. It's not to say that there aren't some days that are hardcore just work, but yeah. the reality is, you know, as a kid, we grew up spending a huge amount of time outdoors on a farm. Um, it was a very rural area where there was no TV. I, I really believe screens and TV destroy a kid's mind. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have that. So, you know, we were on horses, we were driving motorcycles. We were, we were you know, we were shooting with our, our air rifles. You know, it, it was a very, very outdoors life. And it was something I was always fascinated by. You know, I had a butterfly collection. I used to collect bird's eggs. I used to you know, fish every day that I possibly could. And, you know, one of the things that happens, I then went to a, a very country boarding school and it had a huge patch of land associated with it and actually a small game park. Yeah. And so you were, there was a club there where you could, you know, go two or three times a week and proactively work in the game park, looking for birds' nests to photograph, you know, managing the, the small amounts of wildlife that were in there, learning what it took. And so really it wasn't this shocking transition it was something that as far back as i can remember i've been fascinated by the wildlife and, and by the bush and you know like anything in life um the more you know about something the more you understand it and the more you understand it the more you can trust it that even goes with human relationships yeah for sure you know if you and i were going to get into business together the first thing we would want to do is to learn about each other because we can't trust each other until we know about each other once we know about each other, we can start trusting each other. Once we start trusting each other, we can start understanding each other. Yeah. And I think the same thing applies with wildlife as well. And so, you know, the reality of where I've spent so much of my time is, is up close with big game. And what you realize is an elephant is something that's so majestic. It's so overpowering, but it's also an animal that, that will allow you into its space. And it's an animal that's going to communicate through a huge amount of body language, exactly, you know, whether you're too close, whether you, you, you're close enough, whatever that might be. And so, you know, it wasn't a shocking transition where I suddenly decided to go and try, try my hand in the bush. Um, you know, right out of school, I worked at a wildlife orphanage, spent a huge amount of time, um, recuperating wild animals, putting them back in the wild. That was at a place called Chipangali in, in Bulawayo. And then from there, I went into my first guiding job, which was at a photographic lodge on the edge of Lake Kariba. And then, you know, from there, it was a mixture of, you know, I, I ran an operation for a gentleman called John Stevens, a canoe guiding operation. Um, I began to hunt. I began to guide all over Africa. And to this day, my fascination with the outdoors, with big game, with big landscapes, and that's what's led me to start my own foundation is 
I just don't think that there's enough effective people out there yeah. truly making a difference to wildlife. Now, when I say it like that, I'm not saying there aren't any. There's some amazing organizations, people like African Parks that are recovering millions and millions of acres of, of, of wild lands. And, you know, people like that, you know, they're doing an amazing job. And there's, there's a, a good many great conservationists out there. But really, when you look at the volume of money going into Africa, that is wildlife money, yeah. nothing's really coming back for that. There's no return on that investment. And in my mind, the only valuable return on a conservation investment is more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem. If your money and your people are not enabling more wildlife to exist in healthier ecosystems, then you're wasting your conservation dollars. It's that simple, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, 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 that, short. That, that's great, that's great. <laughs> Um, um, so, so I'm going to backtrack just a slight amount. Um, so you, you pretty much answered the one or two of the next next questions. But um, did you from the beginning have the the you know the very which at the moment appears very full on conservation thing going, or did you kind of transform into a realization that oh okay this is so important? Did it you know I can assume the the job was very very great in the beginning, but uh, did, did the realization of the the need for that that massive conservation dawn on you or did it slowly grow how did that process happen no it was really interesting you know like all young people i was really really passionate about what i was doing i was building a business we 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 built a photographic safari business with mobile camps that operated across zimbabwe and you know it was truly driven by passion i mean I just loved every minute I was in the field, um, spent a huge amount of time with big game and taking people into wild and remote places and, and just literally living an outdoor lifestyle that is such a privilege to have had the, the honor of doing. And, you know, at that point, remember that was almost 30 years ago. It makes me sound old just to say that. <laughs> but the reality is wildlife was under significantly less pressure in those days. You know, most big wild areas in Zimbabwe, you might see a black rhino and I remember on a game drive in Manapool seeing seven rhino on one game drive. Today, there's not even one that exists there. And so really you take it for granted because you don't realize that it's under threat. And there was a major turning point for me and it really was. And it was the uh, two things happened very close together. One was we had our first child yeah. and I realized that if I wanted that child to enjoy the outdoors as I had done as a young person, um, you know, it, 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 there was a chance that the outdoors that I knew wouldn't exist. Yeah. And then I was, a, 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 a similar realization happened very soon after the birth of our son. I was, um, I was driving through an area which used to be this very, very wild, very remote area in a, in a place called Omei. And there was an area of Jess, which is this incredibly thick tangle of bush. It would probably two or 3,000 acres. And this particular Jess was a place where there was all kinds of stories of elephants that lived in there and the this and the that, but a very wild and remote place. And I was driving past that area and that entire Jess had just become fields and villages. And so those two things concurrently really made me think that you know what? There's not enough of us. We are all going into the field and we're enjoying it and we're loving it. Yeah. But what are we really doing to make sure that the wildlife footprint in these large ecosystems is maintained? There's not enough of us. Everybody that goes on a safari, 
I hate to say it like this, but it's actually a taker. You're going there, you're taking this great experience and yes, you're paying for it and some of that money finds its way back. But what are we really doing on the big picture to make sure that these areas are preserved? So with the growing human population in Africa, um, you know, that there's more pressure on wild areas than there's ever been in history, which means the cost of protection is higher than ever in history. Yeah, and yeah. so, Kerat, one, one of the things that you realize is that the balance doesn't work anymore. An area that in the past didn't require a huge amount of protection because it wasn't under a huge amount of pressure, obviously didn't, the tourism was able to, to fund the anti-poaching, the protection, the, the management of the area. You look at it today, and now it requires significant philanthropic you know, input to make the same thing happen. And so that's what kind of made me change my mind and what made me start to look and say, okay, what can I do in some small way to do three things, to help preserve these ecosystems, to bring awareness to the general public. And so that's where we kind of fell on the television aspect. That's where Carter's War was born. Yeah. Because if you watch an episode of Carter's War, you'll realize that what it is, is it's not really a wildlife episode. It's not really a human episode, but it's a human wildlife episode where in each episode we, we talk about a conflict, the thin line where humans and wildlife meet is how I describe that. We talk about the communities that are in conflict with the wildlife. We talk about the conservationists and we meet them. It's not, you know, it's a very reality style show where you meet the, the people. And when you talk to a tribes person who's just lost a child to a crocodile, you can very easily hate the crocodile. Yeah. Then you talk to the crocodile conservationist and you realize that that animal, there's no animals left on the riverbanks because they've been displaced by the humans. Yeah. There's very few fish left in the river because it's been overfished because of the humans. Yeah. And so now if you're a crocodile, what else can you eat? Yeah. And so there's not always a simple answer, yeah. but our goal through the show was to really bring a realization and an awareness to the realities because it's very easy to look at a photo on social media. And remember a photo is a, a small fraction of a second. So you're looking at a thousandth of a second snapshot in time and making a judgment based on that photo. And so, you know, photos elicit weird reactions. And so really when you look at it, taking the time through a 44 minute episode to tell a story in all its depth, it's very easy to say the tribes people are terrible. They, they're killing all the crocodiles. It's very easy to say the crocodiles are terrible. They're killing all the people. It's very easy to say, the conservationist is an idiot because he's putting people in jail who are just trying to survive. Yeah. And so you've got to look at all of these aspects. And I always say that every argument is, is a, a function of perspective. And yeah. if you understand the perspectives of the three components of every conservation conversation, there's always a community involved. There's always a conservationist involved. And then there's the wildlife itself. Yeah. That's the, the foundation of every single conservation conversation. Um, as the television shows help to put more dollars uh, down and to to foster more understanding, or are there people who still don't understand? Okay, that's two questions. As the television show help to put more dollars down for conservation? You know, it really was that that kind of is so so it was a, a step by step process. The TV show came first, and our foundation came second because I hoped that we would be able to generate support. Yep. but I didn't realize to what degree. 
And when the support started coming, I started getting emails after the first or second or third shows were aired saying, hey, how do we support? And I'm not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, but, but people wanting to make a difference. $100 here, $500 there, yeah. a couple of grand here or there. And so I realized that, you know what? If we are going to be effective, we want to be very different to any other NGO, very different to any other nonprofit. We want to be results-based. We want to have measurable impact. Yeah. We don't want to just say, hey, well, thanks for the money. We managed to give the Game Scouts extra boots. Well, what does that even mean? Does it mean they catch more poachers? Does it mean they're just more comfortable? Does it mean the wildlife is safer? I don't even know what that means myself. But if I can tell you that, you know, we've reclaimed 2 million acres of wild lion habitat or reduced rhino poaching in Kruger by 80% or, you know, stabilized um, the largest chimpanzee sanctuary in, in Africa, you know, things like that, that are real measurable impacts. Yeah. That is the very foundation of what we do. And really, when you look at a lot of these organizations, and I don't want to name any names, but you know, if you phone them up and say, okay, can you tell us three things that you've, you've had a great impact on, which has led to more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem? They don't know. They're sending all this money to the front line, but they don't know. So they say, oh no, but we funded a, a conservation action plan somewhere. Okay, so what did that entail? Well, <laughs> well, we had a big meeting. And we funded everybody coming in because we think it's an important conversation. So, and then what? Well, we're not sure. Yeah. And so you spend $100,000 having a giant meeting in some famous city in Africa where delegates fly in from all over the world. They discuss things that we already know are happening and everybody goes home and carries on working. Yeah. What was achieved? What happened for conservation at that point? And, and just the understanding, uh, I think it's the, the most recent uh, Kruger National Park magazine. Uh, my father-in-law sent me an article where someone said they were at a meeting discussing, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what the, the issues was about conservation, but it was conservation in Africa. And he said there was no, no African president in the room. It was all Americans and NGOs and, and all these things. And I, I think you touched on it before, but maybe just as a, as a baseline, um, uh, I think there's varied ideas about what conservation is and, and you often talk about it on the Instagram channel that I follow. Uh, just if you could just define conservation for, for the, I don't know if it's different in, in Africa maybe because conservation in New Zealand is, is killing all the, the invasive species, putting out traps, you know, that's, that's conservation in New Zealand. I'll probably get some flack for saying that, but um, uh, just as a baseline conservation, what, what is your, your, uh, so that's a really that's a really interesting and a very broad question. So conservation, that's like saying what is business? Yeah. So is business marketing? Yes. Is business accounting? Yes. Is business, you know, creating a great product? Yes. Is business supply chain? Yes. You know, there's a hundred a thousand things that comprise a good business. And it's the same thing with conservation. So before I go into my definition of conservation, I'm just going to say that. 100% removing endangered, um, removing invasive species is conservation. Okay, Going time. and removing snares from a giraffe is conservation. Expanding an animal's home range is conservation. You know, eliminating certain organisms from an ecosystem where they shouldn't be, that's conservation. However, when you really look at it, most conservation is species-based. 
So we'll say, well, we're an elephant conservation organization. What does that even mean? Because unless conservation refers to the conserving of the entire ecosystem, where are the elephants that you're conserving going to live if you're not conserving a stable ecosystem for them to live in? And so really when you look at it, somewhere like New Zealand, you've got a very, very, a very delicate balance. And I don't want to talk for, for conservationists that are off the continent because I know very little about what actually goes on. But your conservation practice is going to be very, very different. Yeah. But your goal should be the same. Your goal should be to conserve the entire biodiversity of an ecosystem through your actions. So removing invasive plants helps to keep balance, which will allow the natural species to prevail, which is biodiversity so again just to reiterate the meaning of the word conservation has to be conserving the entire biodiversity and preserving a healthy ecosystem because without that everything else fails so we can be in frog conservation and we can go and create you know this amazing action plan around the red-eyed tree frogs in south america unless we are preserving the forest that they need to survive in our, our, our efforts are going to be futile. Yeah. And the same thing is with a rhino, with, a, with, a, with an elephant, with a giraffe, whatever. So conservation as a definition has to be the conserving of an entire biodiversity and an ecosystem. And, and how do you strike that, that balance? Because uh, I think I emailed it to you, but uh, my sister and her husband are near Panamatenga in Botswana. And I, I, I can see her kid also growing up <laughs> the way you grew up because he's, he's six and already, you know, shot his first buck uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but elephant, you know, are, are protected in that area. And but they're really destroying the biodiversity. It's the same in the Kruger. How do you strike a balance and, and how do you handle all these emotions of all these people? Uh, that's maybe maybe too broad a question, but there's so many people who've got opinions on how it should be should be done how, how do you strike a balance so it's a very interesting thing i'm going to ask you a question if you had to get on a ship with three thousand people to cross the ocean would you rather have the best captain or the most popular person driving the ship i'd have the best best captain but uh the most popular is so, probably going to be chosen <laughs> and that is that is today's politics that is today's conservation and so really you kind of answered my question for me is the reality is um so so let's talk for a minute about charismatic species because i'm passionate about that topic as well so you take elephant elephant is a charismatic species there's there's very few people if you showed them an outline of an elephant a silhouette of an elephant wouldn't know that's an elephant they've they've been well researched there's a lot of of work done on them they're known to be you know, highly intelligent, they've got memories, they've got family bonds, they've got a lot of things that we as human, as humans empathize with. Yeah. So they are what we call a charismatic species. And there's lots of charismatic species. So if I'm going to go and apply for a grant, do you think I'm going to be more successful on a grant to research or preserve elephants or hedgehogs? No, well, elephants for sure. Okay, so here's the here's the deal. In an in a viable ecosystem, You've got these charismatic species that are very often the species around which you raise your money. They get the most research. They get the most attention. If I have a huge campaign and I say, help me preserve 2 million acres for elephant, 
I'll raise a whole lot more money than if I say, help me raise 2 million acres for geometric tortoises. Yeah, for sure. And so, but it's a double-edged sword because now you actually know that everybody loves elephant. When your elephant conservation is so successful that you've got too many and everybody thinks they're wonderful, now when it comes to the hardcore decision of how to manage them and utilize that species, the general public throws up their hands and go, oh no, you can't. They're too intelligent. They this, they that, and all of the charismatic traits that we have used to promote their conservation now fight against us because we've made everybody love the elephant. And now we're telling them we want to manage them. And no matter how we want to manage them, you're going to get this huge public outcry. And so it's unfortunately a way of the world, Gerard, where, where public opinion through social media matters more today than it's ever mattered in history. So if you and I post something horrific about an elephant hunt, about a, about a, a slaughter of something, about a poaching incident, whatever, if that goes viral, potentially it can generate thousands and thousands of letters. Yeah. If those letters go to a policymaker, the policymaker who's in place because of votes from the general public will be under pressure to make a stand. Yeah. And so really, when you look at it through social media, people who know nothing about conservation, who know nothing about elephants, are, are, have more of a voice actually than a scientist on the ground who may have studied the species for 30 years. Yeah. Nobody asks him for his opinion. And if they do, they will only take his opinion if it's in line with public thinking. Yeah. And so if we were to say, well, we want to stop all poaching in southwestern Africa. Wow, what a fantastic thing. Everybody thinks that's a wonderful idea. Millions of people tell you, well done, well done. Then you tell them the second part, we're going to do it by culling elephants and feeding the elephants to the people. Yeah. Oh, shit, no, we can't do that. Yeah. We oh, can't sure. do that. Yeah. Because suddenly your charismatic species, the emotion and the empathy becomes, overrides the good sense decision of how we want to sustainably utilize that animal. And so... I use a term which I think you're going to like. It's a, a term that I say responsible resource use. Yeah. And so if you look at a wild area, if we want that thing to be there forever, we have to talk about responsible resource use. We have to talk about how we responsibly use that area. So if you're an anti-hunter, you say, well, we should build a lodge there. Okay, well, let's talk about how much ground we're going to destroy to build a lodge. Let's talk about, okay, so it's going to be a 20-bed lodge. It's going to require, so some of the lodges have actually measured, it's going to require a million liters of water a month to keep it going. Where is that going to come from? What's the impact on the environment of pulling a million liters out? Well, let's build a water hole in front of the lodge in an area where there's never been surface water in the dry season ever. And we're going to pump that so that our guests who have zero impact can watch the animals at the water hole, that instead of migrating out of the area and giving the ecosystem a break, now live in the area and completely modify that ecosystem. Then you want to go on a game drive and have sundowners. So we'll build a gazebo in the middle of a nice natural area, usually a beautiful area. Yeah. So now the human footprint has modified that. And then we've got to have a bunch of game drive roads so you can actually see the big five while you're there. And as, as a lot of people don't realize, a kilometer of road destroys an acre of ground. So 50 kilometers of road, 50 acres destroyed. This is for your zero impact tourist to come and take only photos and leave only footprints. Yeah. 
Then while they're there, if they're there for a week, they're going to flush the toilet 25 times. Um, They're going to have staff that look after them. And when you look at a big game reserve like the Timbavati, for example, you've got 35,000 tourists in there every year in a normal season. And you've got all of the support staff. So think of the surge, think of the, the road networks, think of the impact, think of all the resupply logistics, think of your impact on that ecosystem. So getting back to sustainable or non-sustainable, let's take a hunting operation where the guys arrive, they've got a bunch of wildlife, they don't really adhere to their quota. As quickly as the photographic tourism sector can destroy an ecosystem if it's badly managed, hunting can destroy an ecosystem if it's badly managed because before you know it, the quota is too high, the wildlife is depleted, and your whole ecosystem is broken. And so what responsible resource use means, um, so let me back up just a minute. And I'm sorry again for this long answer, but there's only five ways we can use a piece of natural ground. Only five. We can either settle on it, which completely modifies it. So we build a city, a town, a village, or even just a house, completely modifies it. We can use it for agriculture. So somebody that I know that lives alongside Kruger National Park used to have a hunting operation there, about 20,000 acres. They got so much hate mail and everything else that they fenced themselves out of Kruger and they started a citrus farm. Ask me how many animals exist in their citrus farm. Not one. Yeah. No. But they also don't get any hate mail. They don't get any, they don't get any, any uphill. They just carry on their business and they farm oranges. So your second land use is agriculture. Completely yeah. modifies the ecosystem. So these millions of acres of soybean fields so that the vegetarian anti-hunter can feel like they have less impact. That's to feed humans. Then your third yet land use, if there's good minerals, is to mine it. It's going to significantly modify it. If you've got a forest there, you can log it, which will significantly modify it, which leaves you only one other land use, and that's tourism. Then the discussion comes, which is the most responsible, hunting tourism or photographic tourism? And I won't get into that detail at the moment, but that's where responsible comes in. So in order to have responsible tourism, I don't care whether you're hunting or photographic, three things have to happen. The way you generate your money has to be enough money to support the science and the research and the maintenance and protection of the area. Secondly, you have to have direct community engagement. The community needs to see a direct benefit so that they see the value of a healthy ecosystem. And thirdly, and most importantly, you've got to utilize it in a way that's sustainable so that the, the ecosystem and the biodiversity remain stable. So if it's a hunting operation, you've got to make sure your quotas are carefully set, that your offtake is such that it has zero impact. If it's a non-hunting operation, your footprint needs to be gentle enough that you're not going to destroy your environment in your quest to make the money and feed the community. So the responsible resource idea is something that I think we should all start having a conversation about because there's no human on this planet that has no impact. So this whole green movement, if you really analyze it, it is usually flawed very deeply. So people will say, well, we love to have windmills because it's very clean energy. Well, let's talk about the coal that it took to build the steel to make the windmill because it takes 160 tons of coal to build a steel for one windmill before all of the diesel to carry the windmill to the place and before all of the construction to put the windmill up and very often during the life of that windmill, it can't generate enough energy 
to pay for itself. Yeah, yeah. You, but you, it's just there so that people can feel like they've got clean energy. And yeah. the same thing applies very often with animal writers who say, well, I'm a vegetarian because I don't want to impact the planet. No. Well, like I say, stand in the middle of a soybean field one day and look around you. And now let's talk about impact. Yeah, I, I wrote for Farmers Weekly in South Africa for a long while. And um, I became very disillusioned with agriculture. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there who are doing it the right way with, with, with regenerative, regenerative agriculture. But if you look at the general thing, I mean, you know, you know how it is. Uh, the chemicals that get, get put into the ground are, are just not, not sustainable. Um, but you touched on two things there, community uh, and sustainable use. And I, I just want to steer it toward one thing I wanted to, to, to ask is when you start with a project, um, how, how do you, one, how do you identify an area and how do you get the community, you know, because for me driving around in, in Zimbabwe as a, as a city slicker, uh, you know, you have no frame of reference on what it's like, but w where do you come across an area that you feel you want to preserve something or conserve something or uh, uh, get the, 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 um, uh, some species up or create a healthy ecosystem? And how do you start engaging with the community? Because in, in Africa, you need to engage that community. Like, how does that process, process work? Um, uh, yeah, how, how does that work? How do you identify an area and how do you... So the air, to identify an area, it's easy. There are so many wildlife areas across the continent that need help. So that's an easy thing. I mean, you could choose. You could say to me, Ivan, you know, I, I've got a, a billionaire friend that wants to, wants to stabilize a big ecosystem. Yeah. I can send you 30 options. I mean, within an hour. Okay. Um, so finding the area is easy. Engaging the community... It's exactly like I said earlier. Step one, you have to know each other. Yeah. Step two, you have to understand each other. Step three, you have to trust each other. And that takes a lot of years. It yeah. takes a lot of giving. It takes a lot of reliability. And it takes a lot of time to build the trust of a community. Because in today's Africa, let's agree on one thing. Most African communities have seen NGOs come and go. Yeah. They've seen an NGO that came and completely for free with no expectation, dig a water well and then disappear. You know, church groups go into Bushman land, they dig a water well, they baptize all the Bushmen around the water well, everybody does a high five and they go away never to be seen again. What is their impact actually? Yeah. So the Bushmen were quite fine for the last 2000 years living how they live. And because the Westerners or the first worlders feel like we want everybody to have the life that that we have so we think that a maasai kid with a chicago bulls t-shirt and a fresh water well next to his village is a positive thing well what happens when there's no grazing there he can't carry the water well with him the shirt wears out etc 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 and so now the nomadic lifestyle is modified and in time the cattle are starving because everybody's gathered around these water points and nobody's being nomadic anymore and so the grazing gets destroyed. So it's, I, I use that as just one example, but the reality is it's a very, very complex issue getting a community on sides. And it's got to come with one thing, first and foremost, is, is whenever someone has a, a community development program, I have a really simple question I ask them. I, I get asked for money a lot. And people say, well, we've got this community area in you know, such and such a place. We're doing this, we're doing that. 
you know, we've got great relationship with the community and right there on the phone, I'll say, what's the name of your chief and, and your headman? Well, what do you mean? No, well, what's the name of your chief? And because if you say you've got this great relationship yeah. and you don't know intimately the leaders of your community, yeah. then how are you ever going to achieve anything yeah. if you don't even know the guy's name? You know, and, and so that's like you coming to me and saying, I want money to start a business and I've got three great partners. Great. What are their names? Not really sure their names, but they're great guys and we're going to have this great business together. Yeah. And so it's got to be seen as a partnership, but there's also got to be a very practical understanding of their perspective and their needs. And, and Karen, I think one of the things that we miss out a lot is the perspective. So you and I have never lived in a place where we have to walk three Ks for water. Yeah. We've never lived in a place where there's a possibility every year that our kids don't get fed, you know? And so, so I think that one of the things that we really have to identify and one of the things you really have to do is to understand what the community needs yeah. because very often their needs are very much more simple than we think. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so we also have a phrase in our, in our, in our, our, not-for-profit where we say African solutions to African problems because perceiving that the Bushman needs water is a first world problem that's being projected onto them. If we lived in a scenario where we had to walk for water, we would hate that. So we feel like nobody else should have to do that. But there's far more important things because you may provide them with water, but they may have a, a giant health need. They may have you know, they may be, may, may have another enormous need that we, we couldn't know unless we got to know the community. Yes. And so step one is getting to know your community that comes alongside a bunch of philanthropic dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there's no easy answer to your question, but the reality is it's understanding your community. And I hate to say it, to simplify it right down, it's spending a lot of time under the mango tree, drinking tea with the community leaders yeah. and getting their trust and then understanding what they need and then trying to build a conservation model that fulfills their needs, but also keeps the, the, the ecosystem intact. So if, if, if a foundation comes to you and they say, we've got X amount of money, obviously Ivan Carter can't be everywhere. I assume you've got a, a, a host of friends or fellow hunters or things like that, that you then reach out to and say, well, someone's got money. And then they'll say, well, we know of this town where something is needed. Is that how it usually works? Or, I mean, have you got such an extensive network already that you can say, I've got a place? Uh, yeah, no. So, so we, we've, we've got four main projects that we support. Okay. Um, and it's only four. But within each of those projects, there's a community development aspect. There's a youth and conservation aspect. There's obviously a conservation aspect. There's a science and research component and there's an anti-poaching component in all of them. Yeah. So if you come to me and say, Hey, Ivan, I've got a million bucks from a, a wealthy guy that, that died and wants it to go to conservation. I would say to you, okay, so what aspect of conservation? Do you want anti-poaching? You want, you want community development? Do you want science and research? Well, uh, you know, anti-poaching and some science and research. Okay. Well, here's a cool thing. We're fixing to move 600 elephants next year. You know, we're going to put them in ecosystems where, you know, they, they really are, are required. And so, you know, that's also going to require, you know, six to 10 years of science on the back end of it. And so would you like to engage with that? Well, no, I was thinking something more community. 
okay, well, I tell you what, we've got a deforestation thing on the edge of Katada 11, where to stop people deforesting, we are putting tractors and plowing and good seeds into areas that are already modified for agriculture. And we've defined a line so that anybody that will move out of the forest, we will plow for them and give them seed and fertilizer. Man, that sounds fantastic. How much do you need? Well, I'll send you a budget right now. And so yeah. knowing your projects and knowing the needs, or you could say, well, no, I, I really want to do science and I want to do something with big cats. Okay, cool. We've got a leopard collaring program. We're in the very middle of it. Yeah. It costs us about 10 grand a leopard by the time you've got vets and capture and all of that stuff to put a collar on. Then in another three years, we have to catch it again to take the collar off. So we're looking at 20 grand plus the collars themselves and all of that stuff. It's about 30 grand a leopard. We'd like to do 10, that's $300,000. Then the actual scientist and the research components about a hundred grand a year. So we'd love some help on our big cat research. Well, what do you want to, what do you want to achieve by it? Well, we want to see if there's an adequate population. We want to see what their home ranges are on coastal sand belt, because then if anybody else ever wants to reintroduce them, they're going to know what the carrying capacity is. We want to, and, and so really when, as you can see from the conversation, yeah. knowing these things intimately yeah. is just a part of being passionate about them. Yeah, so sure. if you said to me, well, what's your chief's name? And I said, well, I don't know. That would be the most asinine answer. Yeah. You know, so you say, well, what's the chief's name? Well, it's Chief Torzo. He's got five wives. I've spent a lot of time with him. He spent 25 years working with Mark Haldane and he really likes us because in his kingdom, there's now a clinic and there's a school and there's a plowing project. And there's, we've got 400 beehives in the community there. We've got a fishing program so they don't overfish some areas and not fish others. And you know, we've got all this community development stuff, but every step of it is designed to make our ecosystem healthier. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that it's easy to say, well, look, I want to put a water well for somebody. Yeah. It's not so easy to say, is that really what they need? Okay. I've got, I've got two more questions because I see uh, we're running out of, out of time. And I'm going to say what it is. The one is about uh, uh, um, predator hunting. I just wanted to pick your brain about that. The other one is about rhino, rhino horn because specifically the rhino horn, I kind of grew. Those are some big topics we're going to have to talk yes. about. We're going to have to talk fast. I'm giving you seven minutes each. I'll, I'll do that. Um, so, so once again, writing for Farmers Weekly, I, I became passionate about writing about uh, Rhino, went to a bunch of farms. And on one of the, the farms, it was uh, run by the Crows Brothers. They had a Rhino cow that when they had to dehorn her, she went to lie down on her side by herself, you know. Um, but people don't understand that, you know, you're, you're dehorning, but somewhere you're going to have to start selling this. They don't understand the, the use of it. I, I just want to figure out why can't, why do you think people can't understand that? Because in New Zealand, they're trading uh, deer velvet and it's the same principle. At a stage, they have to cut it off. They don't wait till it falls off and there's a market and everybody's fine with it. But with rhino horn, it's, it's, you can't even mention responsible use is it that people don't understand that the rhino aren't hurt? Why do you think the rhino horn conversation is such a touchy, touchy one? I think we get back to charismatic species. Okay. People don't care about a deer. They don't care about a sheep or a pig or a cow, but they care about a rhino because it's a charismatic species. And so I'm a great proponent. I think 
we should be allowed to trade in rhino horn. I don't think that there's any proof that the market is in any way d diminished. Um, so I think that one of the things that you've got to look at is this whole charismatic species thing, because just protecting the rhinos hasn't worked over the last 60 years. Yeah. Why do people think that doing what we've always done is going to suddenly start working? It's not. And so I think that one of the most important things that we could possibly do is, is to really, I know that this is a dream world of mine, yeah. but if we could have the general public put more value in the science, the scientists and the owners of Rhino versus public opinion, because yeah. every single person that's anti the trade in Rhino are people that don't have Rhino. Yeah. They people that, you know, the people who have the big rhino farms are not anti-trade. And they are the people investing in a, in a lot of cases, their life's earnings in the species. Now, if you could have a legitimate trade where the rhinos were dehorned every couple of years, where communities were given herds of rhino, where the government got a tax on rhino horn, where it was on open auction in Beijing and it was DNA fingerprinted, I'm not going to say that's going to reduce poaching because it won't. I'm not going to say that it's going to reduce the, the cost of horn because it won't. But the play would be 100% as an incentive towards ownership. Nothing more than that. It's an incentive towards the ownership. And if more people have a financial incentive to own a rhino, then more rhinos are going to be propagated and there's going to be more rhinos on the planet. And is that not what we want? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, I think most people think a rhino gets shot to take its horn. Maybe just getting the conversation out there how the process actually work uh, works with with what started. Um, okay, Ivan, I'm gonna let me, let me back up for one minute. Yeah. So we don't want anybody to use rhino horn, but if you look in the background of my video, the background of your video, everything we're wearing, everything we use every single day, at some time was an, a piece of the natural environment, and as humans. We have utilized it, whether we've utilized a mine to mine for cement to build your house, your doors are made of wood that grew somewhere, no. your curtains are made of cotton that grew somewhere. There's wildlife and natural products in so much of what we do. And, and don't forget that a cow or a sheep or a pig at one point was wildlife. And yeah. so really, we've got to look at it and very objectively say, why as humans are we happy to utilize some things and not others? Because yeah. the stuff that we utilize prevails. So there's more corn farmed in America than, than, than ever before because we use it. If yeah. we stopped using it, people would stop farming it. So yeah. if, we, if they stop, you know, if, if, if people are using rhino horn, let's supply that market and have lots of rhinos. Yeah, for sure. And nothing that's farmed has ever been farmed into extinction. So yeah. I interviewed uh, Dr. Lawrence uh, Swanapool in 2016. And at that stage, he was doing leopard research. And uh, it was after two consecutive years of a zero quota uh, for leopard in South Africa. I actually, I've been out of touch, so I don't know if there's a quota at the moment. Um, do you feel there's, there's still space for predator hunting in, in, in Africa or are there numbers so under threat that it, you think it shouldn't happen at all? So I'm going to start with an anecdote, um, Karen. And so uh, they, after the whole Cecil the Lion thing blew up, um, a couple of years later, they banned the importation of lion trophies into South Africa, into, into America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't mean any of the countries in Africa stopped lion hunting. It just meant that most of the market was taken away. 
So the value of a lion hunt went down significantly. And in Tanzania, you used to be able to sell a lion hunt for 120 to $140,000. And in an area with an ecosystem, lions are funnily enough, fairly easy to count. But in an area with an ecosystem of a couple of million acres and, and a couple of hundred lions, they would take one or two males out of that ecosystem. So the quota was very, very low yeah. and accompanied with very stringent restrictions. It had to be an old male beyond breeding. He had to be on his own, not part of a pride. He had to be beyond six years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So very strong criteria and a very small quota. Now with the market disappearing, a large proportion of the Tanzanian outfitters now couldn't sell their lions because a lot of them were mainly in the American market and the Americans weren't going to hunt a lion that they couldn't take home. So they literally, their businesses didn't work anymore because the lion was the keystone species that generated the big money. Nobody was going to spend $140,000 hunting a buffalo or hunting a leopard or, or, or hunting any of the other main species. As a result of that, they handed their concessions back to government and about 14 million acres of various concessions was handed back to government. So that's 14 million acres of wildlife land that now is back in government hands. Yeah. Last year, they gazetted that they were going to resettle that land because there was pressure from the communities because the land wasn't getting utilized. They weren't getting any money. They weren't getting any employment. There was no benefit. And so they wanted to settle it. And from a government's perspective, the government wants the votes and the people are putting them under pressure. So they agreed to resettle it. So as a result, they've resettled 14 million acres of, of former wildlife areas, which have now got villages with cattle and goats. And all of the lions have been wiped out because the lions eat the cattle and the goats. And so the people poison the lions and, you know, then the antelope eat the crops. So they kill those. And so really who won with that? Yeah. Was the lion the winner of that? So everybody was clapping and cheering when they shut the import of lion down but how many lions do you think were killed across 15 million acres of wild Africa as a result of that decision? So the short answer is I very much agree with predator hunting, but here's the enormous but, sustainably and ethically. Yeah. The quotas have got to be carefully set. I'm not talking about canned hunting by any means. I think canned hunting is the most despicable practice and I, I don't stand for it in any way, shape or form. But I do think that well-managed wild predator hunting has the ability to generate so much money that we can't overlook that. Yeah. We can't overlook the financial return from a predator hunt and what you can do in conservation. So I'm, I'm going to make one more statement and I know we're short of time. Yeah. Hunting is not conservation. Yeah. The money that hunting can generate can be used for conservation, but hunting by virtue of just the pursuit is not conservation. So what I mean by that is hunting only becomes conservation when the money that it generates is in the hands of a conservationist. Yeah, for sure. But there's a lot of people out there that just want to get into an area, hunt as hard as they can, make as much money as they can and head for the hills. Yeah. That's not conservation. That's just hunting. Yeah. And there's good and there's bad. Like every practice in the world, whether you're talking about doctors or agriculturalists or accountants, you're going to be, have the vast majority are going to sit somewhere in the middle then you're going to have crazy lunatics on one side that are terribly bad and crazy lunatics on the other side that are terribly good. Yeah. And, you know, the, the focus and the thing that is a, the hugest downfall of the hunting community 
is our inability to control those that are doing it terribly badly because we are all painted with the same brush. And particularly where predator hunting is, is, is involved and the whole canned lion thing that rears its ugly head time and time again. And yet there's so much money in it that, you know, people, people are not willing to walk away from that money. Um, and so, you know, the lion bone trade and whatever, it, it, it just, it doesn't have any bearing on conservation. It, it's a, it's a lion farm. They farm like, like any other animal would be farmed. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's not conservation. It's not hunting. It's just a lion farm. Yeah. And, you know, that's a whole different discussion, whether that should be allowed. But as far as the pursuit of predators on big open areas, I think it's it's very good because it generates a lot of money for the protection of those areas if the, if it's in the right hands. Right. One last question, um, and it's a very uh, typical journalist uh, uh, final question. Um, are there any areas of conservation that you wish would get more media coverage or more funding? Uh, and I assume then away from charismatic species um, that you. Think would benefit from from more more coverage, or more money. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that's an open ended question. If I would never say no to someone who says, "Look, I'd love to bring you some more money." Yeah, yeah. Of because the more money we can flow into wild ecosystems, the healthier we can make them, based on how we do stuff. Um, the thing that I wish people understood better was how the hunting model worked. Okay. And I'm not talking about just the money that flows i'm talking about the whole model because by saying no to the hunting model you say no to a lot of the money that comes in and yeah. so it's irreplaceable so there's lots of areas in botswana which was as you know for several years close to hunting there's a lot of areas that weren't viable for photographic over five years no no tenders were taken the areas were not developed in any way even though the government very proactively looked for for an alternative to the hunting model, they couldn't find one. Yeah. And so when you've got an area of 2 million acres that you take off 20 elephants a year, those 20 elephants go to the villages. And so they've got so much meat that they don't, they don't have to poach. And those 20 elephants generate a lot of government fees to, to hunt them. I don't care if that money doesn't come back to the wildlife. The government still understands where the money came from. Yeah. And then a lot of those areas are owned by community where the community leadership also gets a bunch of money. And so people will say, well, those are very, very small percentages, but the people that are saying that are the anti hunters trying to stop hunting. So if hunting stopped tomorrow, it would be one of the biggest conservation disasters in Africa. And I can understand why people don't like it. I get that. But let's also understand that building a golf course can destroy a giant amount of land and, and, you know, I, this is going to sound really weird, but I always bring up the, the, the everybody hates palm oil. Yeah. I'm sure you see a lot of anti-palm oil adverts. And at the anti-palm oil convention, everyone's drinking coffee. Yeah. But because we all love coffee, we're quite happy that all the coffee grew where there used to be a rainforest. Yes. But we don't want us to plant, plant a palm tree where there used to be a rainforest. And yeah. so why are they not treated the same? Because every cup of coffee you ever drink in your life came from a place that used to be a rainforest that's been destroyed so you can have your cup of coffee. So don't come and tell me you've got less impact. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, I understand that and um, I have no answer. I guess having these conversations <laughs> and changing well, my, 
one person's mind at a time uh, uh, will hopefully have some some impact. I mean, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, I really enjoy that. Um, I've, I've got like a ton more questions here, and but I'm sure we can talk well, for 10 hours. Yeah, for sure. I'd, I'd appreciate it. I'm going to take a quick photo of my Zoom meeting with you so I can pop that into uh, Instagram once the podcast launches. Are you getting another call there? So yeah, I'm just going to wave at you for a photo. No uh, good stuff. And let me just make sure it's taken. Yeah. Ivan. There we go. Thank you. I appreciate it. Very much. You have a wonderful time and we'll talk to you very soon.